Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this blessing, this promise, is for those who mourn. And whether we've experienced big losses or what many might consider small losses, all of them do affect us. But we thank you, whatever it is, you never abandon us. You never dismiss our pain, but you sit with us in it and you comfort us. And so today we hold to your words, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I pray that you would illuminate this text that this sermon that was preached 2,000 years ago would come alive in our hearts in a really meaningful and impactful way. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's safe to say that we in the West are notoriously bad at mourning. I mean, how quick are we to move on after a national tragedy? How often do we keep scrolling after reading devastating news? How often do we distract ourselves from all the pain and sadness in our lives with social media, entertainment, with work, with sex, and like me, with food, right? We love to distract ourselves from the pain. And I think it's safe to say that we as a society are addicted to comfort and repelled by grief. We tend to minimize our pain and sadness and sorrow as much as possible. In other words, we're not very good at sitting in our pain. Case in point, um, there's this clip that went viral from the news a few weeks back when the whole conflict with Ukraine and Russia was first popping off. And I just want to show it to you. It's, it's humorous, but it's also very sad and infuriating. I'll go for it, man. And I think this is a good snapshot. I know it's kind of funny, but it's also actually really disturbing. It's a snapshot into who we are in the West, that we can be sitting in such devastating news, watching it unfold in our very eyes, and then in the next moment, um, get an advertisement for chicken wings from Applebee's. And I think it's safe to say we're not very good at mourning, at sitting in our sadness. And there's a lot in our world to mourn about. The worldwide death toll now for COVID-19 hit 6 million and it's still rising. There's still ongoing injustices against black and brown bodies. This past week, a 67-year-old Asian woman, defenseless, was assaulted in a hate crime, punched in the face 125 times. Add that to the growing and increasing rate of Asian hate crimes that's been happening in cities like San Francisco and New York. There is a good reason, many things that we can mourn about in our world today. And that's not to mention our personal grieving. The grief of losing a loved one. The grief of plans and dreams interrupted. The grief of losing stability. The grief of change and transition. The grief of evolving relationships. The grief of our own fragility and vulnerability in our world. Theologian Dallas Willard, he says this, mourning can mean anything that breaks the heart. I don't know about you. I don't think any of us truly understand how traumatic these past few years have been. I mean, we have been through some intensely heartbreaking stuff globally, within our personal lives, and I wonder how many of us have rushed past our mourning, grief, and sadness just because we don't have time to stop and grieve. 
Unfortunately, the modern-day Western church is no better at this than the rest of the world. We are notoriously bad at mourning. We don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to lament. We don't know how to sit in our pain without busting out a Christian cliche or out-of-context Bible verse or worship song. I swear if one more person tells me to let go and let God, I'm finna let my hands fly. And I swear to you, I guarantee you, oceans will not pull you out of your depression. But we do that all the time. We don't know how to sit in the tension of grief and lament and pain and sadness. We always try to put a spin of hope or Jesus on it. Christian author Simon Tugwell, he says this, Blessed are those who mourn is paradoxically a more necessary message than rejoice in the Lord always. Because there can be no true rejoicing until we have stopped running away from mourning. What's interesting, I want you to think about the last time you went through a really difficult time where you were internally mourning and grieving, lamenting in pain. And I think for many of us, when we went through something like that, church seems to be the last place we want to be. Am I the only one that feels that way? You know, I can't go to church because I'm in too much pain. I can't go to community group because I'm feeling depressed. I don't want to bring the mood of my group down. But what this tells me is that we have very little confidence that the church is a safe place where we can mourn and grieve and sit in our sadness and pain without someone coming to us and prophesying you're coming out of your depression. But we have to understand this idea is very modern, actually, that in the early church, people knew That the church was where we could go to mourn together, where we could go to collectively grieve and lament the personal tragedies as well as the communal tragedies. It was a place where they could bring their sadness and pain before God and community and not have to immediately shift out of it. And we have to recover that. Hear me, church. God is not afraid of our sadness. He's not freaking out about our grief or our lament. He's not anxiously trying to rush us out of our pain. Our mourning is not too overwhelming for him. And we as the church should reflect that to the world. As followers of Jesus, as the body of Christ, we must learn how to embrace mourning. Last week, we had a guest speaker, uh, Reward. Did you guys love Reward, by the way? I immediately connect to Reward. I'll tell you why in a minute. But, but after church, so Reward is, he grew up in Zimbabwe. He lives right now in Dallas, Texas. His church is like 90% white. And we were talking, and I, I wanted to take him out to something special, something you can only get in the Bay Area. And so I took him to Santung to get chicken. Y'all had Santung, right? So it was Santung for the first time. And then he told me he never had boba. He's like, what's boba. And so I was like, we're going to get you boba. And so we got chicken. We picked it up. We walked down the street. We sat at a boba shop. We ate chicken. And when he ate it, his face lit up. You know, when people tell you that food is good, that's one thing. But it's another thing when you see the chicken wing bones pile up on his plate. We ordered two boxes. I swear he ate one box by himself. And then he tried the boba. And listen, he loved it so much his first time trying boba. That night, I was ordering him dinner for his hotel room. He's like, is there boba nearby? <laughs> the next day before I took him to the airport, he's like, can we stop by and get boba before I go? Like he, I felt so proud, man. I got him into boba. It's going to bring it back to upper room, the anointing. Anyway, what happened after we had delicious chicken and boba, he was gleaming and, and shining. We walked back to his rental car, and the back window was smashed in. And the one bag that was taken 
had his iPad, his computer, AirPods Pro and AirPods Mac. I don't know why he had two AirPods, but he had AirPods Pro and AirPods Mac and his Zimbabwe passport that he actually has to go back to his home country to renew and get another one and among other things. And immediately he was like, there was a moment of grief and mourning and loss. And then we actually went on an adventure because his AirPods Max had like, you know, tagging on it. And so we actually, it went to East Oakland. And so we got in the car and we drove over to East Oakland. We were following this thing. We're like, I don't know what we're going to do because, you know, I'm not very intimidating looking. I don't know what we're going to do if we pull up on these dudes. And so we went from one location to the next. All of it was a bust. That night, actually, um, after I dropped him off at his hotel room, he got another ping like at 11 p.m. And, you know, I was busy with my friends. So actually, Joseph um, offered to drive him to that location. Uh, They show up. It's like a boarded up laundromat. And then the police get there and they're like, oh, this is probably not here because this is actually a safe house. It's a police safe house, the boarded up laundromat. And so we went on this crazy adventure. But, but the reason why I'm telling you this story is not we didn't recover the stuff. Okay, that's not the story. I know. We were close. We were really close. I feel like we missed it by a few minutes. But the thing about Reward and I, we're both Enneagram type sevens. And if, if you were in the car with us that day, you would never guess that we were freaking out or that we were worried. There was so much positivity emanating from that car. His Enneagram Type 7 was triggering my Enneagram Type 7. And by the way, Enneagram Type 7s, if you don't know, our core motivation in life is to avoid pain at all costs. And so we actually just like overload with positivity. And so we're driving. He's like, bro. This was the best weekend ever. The enemy's not going to rob me of my time. The enemy's not going to rob me of my joy. God really moved at your church. Like, Boba was so good. Santang was so good. I was like, yeah, man, I, yeah. We're going to get these guys reward. We're going to find them. We're gonna... And there was just this positivity. And at one point, we stopped, and we're like, hey, reward, do you think we're just, like, masking our pain and our sadness and our loss with positivity? He's like, probably, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, in the church, don't we do that? We mask all of the real-world complexities of sadness and grief and mourning with positivity. Now, I think there are three alternatives that we often choose um, that's contrary to mourning, that pull us away from the blessing that Jesus promises us. And so the three are this. Number one, repression. We bottle up our grief and our sadness. We repress, we repress, we repress. And what does repression do? Repression inevitably leads to outbursts of rage or pain. And so we repress feelings of mourning and sadness so long until there's a, gen- there's a moment where we just hold it all until we explode. And so the first is repression. The second, we retreat. We avoid pain at all costs. We avoid our feelings of grief and sadness. Instead, we seek pleasure and happiness and distractions. But what retreat does, it inevitably leads to addiction or reliance on self-medication. And the last, resignation. We sink into utter despair and hopelessness. We cut ourselves off from feeling anything at all. We, We are numb. And it inevitably leaves us disconnected. Now, like all great theological illustrations, Marvel has the best stories that help us make sense of life. And one of my favorite Marvel TV shows has been WandaVision. You guys ever see WandaVision? 
And there's this scene where Vision, who is an android, right, he's never felt the complexities of human emotion, sits with Wanda after she loses her brother. And this is a scene, I just want us to watch it and be blessed. Wanda, I don't presume to know what you're feeling, but I would like to know, should you wish to tell me, should that be of some comfort to you? What makes you think that talking about it would bring me comfort? Oh, see, I read that... uh, The only thing that would bring me comfort is seeing him again. wave washing over me again and again. It knocks me down, and when I try to stand up, it just comes for me again. And I can't. It's just gonna drown me. No. No, I won't. How do you know? Well, because it can't all be sorrow, can it? I've always been alone, so I don't feel the lack. It's all I've ever known. I've never experienced loss because I've never had a loved one to lose. But what is grief? If not love, persevering. Come on. I just want to, I just want to, we could just preach on that. What is grief if not love persevering? I've been waiting to use that in a message. Come on, P. Pushing that P. From an android, okay, guys? A humanoid android. But what is grief if not love persevering? Grief is the shadow side of love. Not to grieve implies that you've never loved. And if you've ever loved in your life, then not to grieve ever is actually to live a lie because we've all loved and we've all lost. And when we cut ourselves off from grief, we actually cut ourselves off from love. When we turn to resignation or retreat or repression, we cut ourselves off from experiencing the very thing we actually all crave as human beings, which is love. All of these alternatives that we mentioned rob us of the blessing and comfort that God offers to those who mourn. So then the question is, what does Jesus actually mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted? And there's three things I want to land on today. And the first is this, mourning is, is an invitation to experience God. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I know that sometimes we think of Jesus as this positively joyful guy, but I love how Isaiah 
shows that he actually experienced the complexity of the human experience, that with the joy, he also experienced sorrow. It describes him as a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. When his best friend Lazarus died, what did the Bible say? Jesus wept. And he knew that he was going to bring Lazarus back to life. But why did he weep? He was caught in the sadness of the moment. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus was lamenting the suffering that he would have to endure. So much so that he was crying tears of blood. Why? He knew he would resurrect. He was caught in the sadness of the moment. What I love about Jesus is Jesus knows that the story ends well, but he never removes himself from feeling the sting of the present moment. You know, my wife is very strange for the fact that when she watches TV shows, if it's too scary, she'll read the synopsis before she watches the episode. And I used to be into the show called The Walking Dead because I love gore and zombies and horror. I'm a really bad pastor. But we were into The Walking Dead, and I remember Krista would read the synopsis and decide whether or not she was going to watch the show or not. And for me, one time I was glimpsing on our phone, and I saw a spoiler for that week's episode. And after seeing how the episode would end, and who would survive? I had no more emotional investment in watching it. Are you guys like that? Like, where you, if you know the end and you know who makes it out alive, you know how everything wraps up, you're not, you can't be present. But I love that Jesus, although knowing the end, she's, he's like Krista, he can still be present in the moment, allow himself to feel the swelling rush of different emotions of the here and now. You know, symbols are powerful. When you see the golden arches, what do you think? McDonald's, right? When you see the swoosh, what do you think? Nike. When you see uh, the mouse, you know it's Disney. And the symbol of the Christian faith is what? It's the cross. And it's a curious symbol because the cross in Jesus' time represented death. And of all the symbols in the world to, like, represent your faith, why would you choose the symbol that represents death? Well, we know the story, Jesus transforms that symbol of death to a symbol of hope and newness through resurrection. But then the question is, then why not make the symbol of the Christian faith like an empty tomb or like a risen Jesus like this? Why still make the symbol of the Christian faith a cross? The the thing that strikes me about the symbol of the cross is that although we have resurrection, Death is not ignored. We know God wins. We know God will triumph. We know heaven is coming, but it doesn't make the here and now any less painful. It doesn't make the sting of death any less sharp. It doesn't make the agony of loss any less weighty. And what I love about God is that he doesn't ignore our grief. He doesn't diminish our pain or gloss over our hurting. He sits in it with us. He chooses to suffer with us. He remains with us in our mourning. He cries with us in our grief. He sits with us in our sadness. And oftentimes, before God reveals himself to be God all-powerful or God almighty or God who saves, he reveals himself as God with us. Emmanuel. In other words, you can't have Easter Sunday without the suffering of Good Friday. Or the silence of Holy Saturday. There will be death in our lives. There will be tears. There will be pain. There will be suffering. But the promise is that through it all, God is 
with us. Remember, Scripture never says that God is a helicopter for our souls. It says that he is an anchor for our souls. What do I mean? When the storms of life come, and they always do, the promise of God isn't to swoop in like a helicopter and lift us up out of our circumstances, our pain, and our suffering. The promise is for God to meet us in the very place of our suffering, of our pain, in the middle of the storm, and hold us through to anchor our souls so that we do not drown or drift away. Another Christian author, Katie Luz, writes this really profound statement about grief. She says this, grief is a nonlinear, aggressive friend. Pain does not like to be pushed. It needs to be validated and then healed. Grief is a divinely designed gift to process pain. It cannot be rushed. It It cannot be directed and it cannot be prescribed. It must be embraced wholly as it comes and respected deeply and faithfully. It is both holy and terrible. We grieve because we love. What's unique about Jesus is Jesus didn't live life ignoring his pain and suffering and grief. And the invitation for us is not to ignore it either. Mourning actually draws us into a deeper experience of God. This is why the psalmist says, the Lord is near to who? To the broken hearted. It's not that God is closer to those who are suffering, but those who are suffering have a unique grace and an opportunity to experience the closeness of the Lord like no one else. This is why this beatitude Jesus says, of all the people, the poor, of all the hungry, he says, it's actually the mourning who will experience my comfort and my nearness. See, the gospel is an invitation to fully feel the suffering of life, but not alone. We mourn with the one who is with us. We suffer with the one who comforts us. And the questions I want to ask you today are, have you allowed yourself to mourn the hardships of your life? Have you allowed your heart to fully feel everything in the present, whether good or bad? And have you invited God into your morning because he is there and he will meet you and sit with you. And his presence is his comfort. And so the first thing, morning leads us into an experience of God. But the second is this morning is shared suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, and get this, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God, hear me, our calling as the church when we read this beatitude is not just an invitation for us when we are mourning to feel God's comfort, but it's actually a calling for us to comfort those who are mourning. Have you noticed that sorrow and grief are a necessary consequence of being close to people? In other words, if you are in relationship with someone, if you have a friendship with someone, pain and suffering is unavoidable when we're loving others. It just comes with the territory. I mean, when you're close to someone and tragedy touches them, what happens? It touches you too. Their tears become your tears. Their pain becomes your pain. Right now, I don't know why, but there are two friends, or two, one's more of an acquaintance, but one's actually a really close friend, 
in my life where both of their sons have terminal illness, illness, where they have a brain tumor that cannot be healed, that cannot be operated on. It's pretty much they're living on borrowed time. And when I found out the news, one of my friends, um, we pretty much grew up as pastors together. Like we, we went through everything together. When I heard about his son, it, it wasn't just his pain. It became my pain. And I remember we were hanging out one time, and, and I remember there was no words I could say to comfort him except just to be there with him and share in his suffering. And I think there's something powerful about that. Thomas Beckett, who was a church saint, he says this, The mourners belong to the kingdom not because they mourn, but because sorrow evokes Christ's compassion. What is compassion? Compassion is shared suffering. It's seeing the suffering of another and choosing to enter into that pain with them. Richard Rohr, he says, in this beatitude, Jesus praises those who can enter into solidarity with the pain of the world and not try to extract themselves from it. You know, it's one thing to sit with someone who's grieving and saying, oh, I can offer you hope. Oh, here's some encouragement. Here's some comfort. It's another to say, I feel with you. I'm sad with you. I'm crying with you. My heart is broken with you. It's heavy with you. Shared suffering. It's sitting with people in their grieving, in their suffering, and in their pain. And one of the things that this beatitude is getting at is that part of the comfort that's promised to those who are mourning comes from one another. And this is the beauty of community. When you're in pain, And when that pain is shared in a community of people who love you, it almost becomes bearable. But when grief really becomes unbearable is when we grieve alone, when we suffer alone. Brian Zond, he says, Blessed are the depressed who mourn and grieve, for they create space to encounter comfort from another. Before Krista and I became a thing, we we're actually really close friends. Actually, she was dating my, one of my best friends. Long story for another time. It ends really well. That, that guy actually became one of my groomsmen. Funny story. But anyway, in college, um, I went through this really dark time in my life. And it was so dark, the only way that I could describe it to you is to paint a picture of one day where uh, the skies were just gray and I was just feeling so low. And I was so depressed and so down that we used to have this fireplace in our um, apartment unit. And for some reason, I curled up by the fireplace, but it wasn't even lit. And I just was in the dark with all the curtains closed, gray skies, just curled up by this unlit fireplace for like the entire day. I know, I was so dramatic. You know, Ian and I were talking like we used to be so much more dramatic in college, right? But I remember one day Krista came in because I was supposed to go to class with her. And she saw, she opens the door. And I'm like curled up by an unlit fireplace. And, and compassion just fills her heart. If you know Krista, she, she's just a compassionate woman. You know what she did? She, she, she walked up to me. And she laid on the floor next to me, curled up next to me. And we just laid there for like a few hours. We didn't go to class. And I remember there's something about that moment where I felt so much comfort. Words weren't even necessary. I didn't need a scripture verse. I didn't need a prayer. There's something about sharing suffering that just comforted me in a powerful way. After that, I got up and cooked some food. I was still depressed, but it was, it was comfort in a moment of low hardship. 
And the questions I want to ask you are, have you invited people into your morning? Have you allowed those who love you to enter into your suffering with you? I think Asians are actually really bad at this because we don't want to burden people. It's just kind of ingrained. I don't know if you, how you were raised, but my parents kind of ingrained me to not put my burdens on other people. And I think this is really hard for us to have people take on our suffering, to enter into our mourning with us. But the second question I want to ask you is this. Are you close enough to people to feel their pain? Are there people in your life that are grieving? How can you suffer with them and how can you comfort them in that collective suffering? And so mourning leads us into an experience of God. Mourning is shared suffering. The last is this. Mourning is an act of tearful defiance. Psalm 3011, the psalmist writes, you have turned my mourning into dancing for me. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Revelation 21.4, describing the end of days, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The promise of this beatitude isn't just for a present blessing, but the hope of a future blessing. That there is coming a day when the deepest wounds of life will find full healing and restoration and comfort. Well, there will be no more death, no more injustice, no more in mourning, where God will make all things new. C.J. Montefiore, Jewish scholar, I have to say it like that, Montefiore, Jewish scholar, he says, comfort in the biblical sense is not a pat on the shoulder or a band-aid on a scraped knee, but it is apocalyptic. It is the remaking of the old age into a new age where there are no more tears. If you've ever wondered if you'll stop feeling the sting of loss, the weight of depression, the pain of heartbreak, the frustration of injustice, the answer is yes. There is coming a day where there will be no more tears, no more mourning, no more pain. And I don't know about you, but I can't even fathom what that will be like. The beautiful thing is that God invites us into this work of redemption through our tears, through our mourning. Nicholas Wolterstorff, he actually wrote about this after he was lamenting the death of his son. You know, after having Zion, I just cannot imagine losing your son. And after losing his son, this is what he writes. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day who ache with all their being for that day's coming and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. The mourners are aching visionaries. They tell of God's future promise with their tears. Our mourning, hear me church, our mourning is a form of prayer. It's a holy lament, a sacred aching for that coming day where there will be no more tears. It's a prophetic protest against the way things are. That's why if you've ached with us for the systemic injustices against black and brown bodies, your tears have interceded for a day where injustice will be no more. If you've lamented with us for the increasing violence against Asians, your cries have prophesied a coming day where violence will be no more. The mourners are aching 
speaking visionaries, proclaiming a day through their tears where God will make all things right. This is why lament, this is why mourning is so important. Because in our tears, in our mourning, we are actually prophesying. We are aching visionaries telling of a day where God will make all things right. This is why Romans 8.22, Paul writes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Hear me, church, you don't need to blow a shofar, or you don't need to sing a prophetic song of declaration or hope. Your tears are your inward groanings of a day where God comes to make all things right. The world is pregnant with a new reality, one that knows no sadness or pain, and we are in the birthing process. This is why life is filled with groaning and with tears, because we are literally laboring for a new world. That's why Eugene Peterson I love this. He says, history is lubricated by tears. And your tears are paving a way for God's renewal. Um, I want to close with this last quote from Walter Brueggemann. And he says this. He's a theologian that I really love. And he says this. I've spent much of my life working hard to manage grief, trying hard to be resourceful and resilient But maybe there's a time to stop, look closely at the world, and speak out in tearful defiance. To say with the prophets, like an empty-handed beggar, I am helpless in the face of all that grieves me, but I won't be silent. And I won't pretend that all is well. The weepers in their weeping said, we will not be silent. We will not swallow our tears. We will tell the truth about loss. I want to invite you to respond right now. Why don't we just close our eyes? I believe. I believe right now that the Holy Spirit is here. And I don't know if anything that I said resonated with you, but I believe there's an invitation today for the mourners. I believe there's an invitation today for those who are grieving For those who are sitting in sadness or pain. I believe there's an invitation for those who need comfort. And if that's you, I believe Jesus has a blessing for you. I want to pray this prayer as a paraphrase for maybe what some of us might be experiencing right now. This is the beatitude. Blessed are the sad, the depressed, those grieving the death of a loved one, the failure of a marriage, another miscarriage, the pain of their family history, the racism of our nation, the uncertainty of transition and change the reality of our vulnerability and fragility in this world. Blessed are they because one day God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
right now, I want you to just take a moment. And we don't need to make this, we don't need to stir up emotions with music or anything like that. But I believe God, God wants to comfort you. God wants to meet you in your mourning and your sadness and your grieving and your uncertainty and your worry and your pain. And he wants you to know it's okay. You don't have to shift out of it. You don't have to get over it. I want to meet you right in the middle of it. And right now, I just feel there's a grace to feel the nearness of God. For him to hold you in your suffering and pain. For him to hold you in the midst of your trial. And so right now, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you release your nearness and your presence over those who are mourning? For every tear, for every bit of sadness, for every hurt, for every aching, for every longing. God, would you hold us in our grief? Would you hold us in our mourning? Would you hold us in our pain?